coming up on the Brent Allen Podcast. Hey, Rodrigo. Yes, Hernando. You know what the plan is, Ese. I forgot, Cholo. Okay, so you're going to take out the ice agent, take his walkie-talkie, and then contact Consuela for the signal. After that, I'm going to send you to the children one by one and give them to the coyote. Okay. Vamano, 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 Ese. Vamano. Okay, Carl. This is Uno. That means you do not run over to the detainment center and give the green card to the illegals. Okay, okay. Okay, I put down a green card. Now that means you put down a green card. Wait a minute. I have a green card. That means I can go give it to the caravan of illegals. No, Carl. That is exactly what I said not to do. Don't leave me. In the bushes. Now, what move do I use on him? How about the back kick burrito? Yeah. Okay. One, dos, tres. Attention, all ICE officers. There has been two illegals spotted near the San Diego wall. Border agent commander, ICE officer Carl ran away. Hmm? What do you mean? He went to go give the caravan green cards again. He keeps doing this routinely. Okay, okay. I'm going for real this time. Uno, dos, tres. Attack, sir! Ouch! Stay down, SA. Give me your walkie-talkie. Get the hell off of me. I am an ICE officer. And guess what? I am a Democrat! Ouch! Okay. Where is the walkie-talkie? Oh, oh, here. Channel 5, Channel 5. I repeat. Channel 5, Channel 5. Hello? Consuela, I took out the ice officer. Now you need to signal Hernando. Oh, no. I mean, oh, yes. I hate ice. Anyway, Hernando, Hernando. Vamano, vamano. Okay, let's go. You have to go to the other side of the road and get to the coyote. And then you are officially in the sanctuary state of California. Vamano! Oh, come on. When are they going to be here? I've been waiting for... Uh... Hi, kids. Wow, there's a lot of you. I'm so embarrassed, but I'm going to be your coyote today. You can call me Garglord or Uncle Freddy, whichever one works. Stop it right here. This is human trafficking. Well, well, well. This right here is a felony. Wait, stop right there. I am Nancy Pelosi, coming to save these migrants, because it turns out we are all humans too. And even though Garglord was going to head into that shed and fondle these kids. He is justified. It's a ma'am! Now give me your corporate number! Anyway, they, them. That's better. It's justified because it turns out walls are immoral and ineffective. Wow, we cross your borders illegally, committing a federal crime, traffic humans, smuggle drugs, mooch off your social benefits, and kill and rape your people, and you still let us in? Well, Rodrigo, I'm a Democrat. It's what I do. 
And if you let me cool you one time, you be my regular style. All right, boys. I put my banana pixie cups on flavors and push up to her ice cream man. Stop me with a bunch of five. She now all my flavors can't be satisfied. Yes. Welcome back again to the Brent Allen Podcast. Today is our second solo episode, so that means we have no one on. Sorry, we'll have somebody on within the next couple episodes. Uh, Anyways, real quick before we get to anything else, please head over to iTunes or whatever you're listening to this episode on and give this show a dazzling five-star rating. We really need some more ratings. Thank you so much for the people that have left ratings and positive feedback Right now, we have 11 ratings and 4 reviews, bringing the show to 14 stars in total. So thank you a lot. And also, if uh, we don't get at least 15 or so ratings every month for the next couple months, I highly doubt that we'll be uh, doing this much longer because the podcast just won't grow and we won't get enough support. So go do that right now before you can forget. Um, if you can't, write yourself a note. Leave yourself a reminder. Do whatever you have to do. Uh, I know this is annoying, but I'm going to keep pounding you. Until we get a lot more. So go to that right now. And what do we have now? Uh, what am I thinking? We have liberal joke of the day. What do you call a basement full of liberals? A wine cellar. See what I did there? Because they're, cause they're constantly complaining. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Anyways, so hopping into the news. Vox has made yet another great move by promoting their leftist, socialist, delusional, progressive agenda. Again, and this time, it's not a video, sorry. I know that was pretty fun last time. I got a lot of good feedback on that, but we're going to do that pretty soon. This time, it's an article, and it's titled, Is Capitalism Worth Saving? So the answer to that is yes, of course. Aside from Christianity, which brought Western culture and capitalism is the best thing that has happened in mankind. So, let's get into this. Is capitalism worth saving? A debate with economics writer Stephen Perlstein by Sean Illing. Okay, so before we get into this, I just want to tell you a little bit about Stephen Perlstein. So, I researched this guy a little bit, and from what I've seen, he's never really named the party he belongs to. But researching a little bit more, I found he was a journalist for the Foster's Daily Democrat in New Hampshire. And during the late 70s, a decade after most of the left started to take in this progressive idea... He served as administrative assistant to Senator John A. Durkin of New Hampshire and Representative Michael J. Harrington of Massachusetts, who both happened to be Democrats. So I think it's fair to say that Pearlstein is somewhere on the left. And under the subtitle, it says, By Sean Illing, who is a liberal. And if you check out his Twitter, I don't even need to explain why. But I'm not going to get critical of the people too much. I don't know them too much. I This is the first time I've ever heard of them. So I'm just going to be very critical of their ideas. Um, along with Perlstein too. Both of them. So let's just get into it. A decade ago, 80% of Americans believed that a free market economy was the best economic system. Today, 
that number is 60%. Another recent poll shows that only 42% of millennials support capitalism. Yeah, not many millennials support capitalism, and there are four main reasons why. The first is that they look at socialism in theory, not in policy. What I mean by that is anybody who knows a little bit of, about socialism is knows that it's, I don't want to say wonderful in theory, because it's not, and that's the biggest repo- uh, problem I have with Republicans, is that Republicans say, when they're debating socialists, they always say, socialism is great in theory, it talks about equality, it talks about, it, talk, it talks about equality, it talks, yeah, about equality, and and you put it into policy, and it's awful. Collectivism, that was the word I was thinking of. Talks about equality and collectivism, which is both great in theory. This is what a lot of Republicans say. And then you put it into policy, and it's awful. No, not really. That's the biggest problem I have with Republicans. It's awful in theory, too. I wouldn't say it's awful. It's okay bad in theory. If you want to exclude the part where it says pretty much in the entire communist manifesto and socialist theory and philosophy, all it talks about is it's it's justifying theft. It's talking about the poor stealing from the top 1% and the rich, and sometimes the middle class too. So I'd say it's okay, bad in theory, and then it's really bad in policy. So that's what they look at it as. They look at it in theory, and they believe it's okay for theft, I guess. Um, but what happens is these, like, millennials, I just said, they don't look at it in policy, which is disastrous. In the past 100 years, socialism has been implemented in 100 countries, destroyed 100 cultures, and killed 100 million people. And the fact that this generation just ignores it is astonishing. Uh, now, the second reason mil- millennials generally don't support capitalism is because they want free college tuition. They want to go to college for the master's or doctorate degree and not have to pay 100000 or 150000 or even 200000 Um, And the third reason is because millennials want equality. They want, quote-unquote, equality. And that's not a bad thing. They just want a level playing field, and they want everyone to be treated fairly. That's not a bad thing, but it turns out life's not always fair. In fact, 90% of the time, life is not fair. There are winners and losers, and some people work harder than others, and that's how they succeed more. And the fourth reason, the final reason, is very simple. It's because millennials have a deep sense of entitlement. Conservapedia actually uh, defines entitlement, the entitlement mentality as, quote-unquote, a state of mind in which an individual comes to believe that privileges are instead rights and that they are expected, expected as a matter of course. So one example is healthcare. Even even though healthcare isn't a privilege, it's a commodity. And as a commodity, we have to incentivize it. So that's the fourth reason. And if you put the last three I just said together, it, it just all ar- revolves around my first reasoning on which millennials are misinformed and not educated about the actual results of in policy of socialism. And that is very scary to think that socialism is on our doorstep because an entire generation doesn't have faith in capitalism. Now, getting back to the article. So what happened? Why have so many people, both in the U.S. and abroad, lost faith in cap- capitalism? Stephen Perlstein, a columnist for the Washington Post and public affairs professor at George Mason University, has a few answers. The primary reason is that the system has become too unstable. 
Wages are largely stagnant. The income gap is so wide that the rich and poor are effectively living in different worlds. No surprise, then, that people are unhappy with the status quo. You know why this system is so unstable? It's because of these social programs that Democrats have implemented into our economy at mass expenditures. It's because of the Medicaid and Medicare and Social Security and the Universal Health Care and Obamacare. Go back 15, 20 years ago. Our capitalist free market economy was pretty stable because you don't have people in charge like Obama. He was the first president to spend more on mo money on welfare and so social programs than on our military. In 2015, Obama spent $587 billion on our national defense and $667 billion on welfare. That's $80 billion more. Or you didn't have people like Alexander Ocasio-Cortez or Bernie Sanders who want to spend up to $42.2 trillion on social sec security expansion, free college tuition, guaranteed jobs, Medicare for all, and student loan forgiveness. The fact of the matter is that our free market capitalist economy is very stable if you take the social programs out of the equation. There is not a single, a single, mark my words, not a single good thing about socialism. And then, what was it? The second thing he mentioned was wages being stagnant. Yes, they are. But under Trump, there's a 3.3% increase in the 2018 third quarter. And then you mentioned the income gap. My, oh my, income inequality is not bad unless it's growing at a consistent rate. And what I mean by that is if the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. And that's the exact opposite of what's actually happening. A poor person in the United States is living better than a rich person in the U.S. in the 1920s. I mean, think about it. We all have air conditioning, a phone, or a TV or two. But the problem the left doesn't understand with income inequality is that it's actually a good thing. It's a really good thing. You have it everywhere in the world, actually. In places like the U.S., it's especially good because in a capitalist, free market economy, people become wealthy, making what the rich enjoy today until almost everybody can enjoy tomorrow. Fifteen years ago, a large flat screen TV was 2500 Was it about that? I don't know. I was on around there. $2,500 plus. And no one could afford it. Now, both the upper and most of the middle class have not only one, if not one, two in their homes. The rich are the test buyers. That being said, income inequality isn't necessarily good in all countries. I mean, Ben Shapiro puts this in a good way. Uh, he said in a YF event, I believe, uh, if you go to Sudan, you're going to have a rich warlord and a bunch of people living in poverty. But that's completely different than modern-day U.S. That's completely different than free market capitalist U.S., and for the left to say that income inequality is a bad thing just ignores basic economics because forced equality means less opportunities to pursue, to pursue what makes you individually great. Um, getting back to the article now, Pearlstein's, Pearlstein's new book, Can Capitalism Survive?, chronicles the excesses of capitalism and shows how its ethical ethical foundations have been shattered by shadow shattered i can't talk right now by a radical free market ideology often referred to as neoliberalism capitalism isn't dead pearlstein argues but it has to be saved from itself before it's too late okay so i wouldn't say neoliberalism has necessarily destroyed the millennial and left-wing view of capitalism 
I'd say it would certainly be the recession, followed by the rise of progressive liberalism and millions of Americans buying the socialist lie. I, I And then the next part says, I spoke with, to him about how we might do that, whether capitalism is even worth salvaging at this point, and why he thinks America needs a new social contract between business and society. A lightly edited transcript of our conversation follows. Okay, so this is like the weird interview format part. So it's like a script of two people talking. So here we go. Sean Illing. Why have so many people lost faith in capitalism? So, and by the way, when I say like their names, that's like a picture of it. Like their names on top. I'm not saying like Sean Illing. Like to them. So it's Sean Illing says, why have so many people lost faith in capitalism? Stephen Perlstein the most obvious answer is that capitalism has left a lot of people behind in the last 30 years. Everyone can see that the top 1%, the top 10%, the top 20% have captured the most benefits in the, of economic growth of the last 30 years when the rest of the population has been marginalized. Okay, so this guy's solution to this right off the bat is redistribution of wealth, which does not achieve competition one single bit. What achieves competition is the values you put into your work life. That's why you have poor people winning the lottery, becoming poor again. They don't have values with their money. They don't know how to stretch a dollar in a week, in a one-week span, like the hard-working people of the middle and upper class, especially the middle class. People that are poor in the U.S., they don't stay poor forever in the United States for their entire life if they know how to manage their, manage their money. And what the left doesn't get is the top 1% in 10% keeps growing because they ride off of the inventions of a free market economy in order to make logical and constitual transactions. And redistribution of wealth, a.k.a. socialism, is the most selfish idea out there because it says, I am here, now give me shit, where capitalism says, if I do not go out and make a living, living I will starve to death. So this means, stop blaming the 1% for being able to me make meat's end. Perlstein also says in this next part, Now, we all know this, but I wrote a book because I think there is a feeling, even among the, those of us who don't get left behind, that the system has become too unfair, too ruthless, and rewards too many of the things we, ha we think of as bad. The system offends the moral sensibilities, even of people who are benefiting from it. What are you talking about? Capitalism offends the moral sensibilities of people who are benefiting from it? A 2018 study from Gallup found that 57% of the top 1% of earners in the U.S. identified themselves as Republican or conservative. 57%, that's more than half. 35% of the top 1% identified as Democrats or, li or liberals. And 8% identified as independent or libertarian. So that's like centrist area. Um, also, 87% of Republicans or conservatives in the top 1% support capitalism. 47% of Democrats or liberals in the top 1% support capitalism. And 65% of libertarians and independents in the top 1% support capitalism. So to your point, yeah, capitalism could offend a chunk of the 1%, but probably about a third of the top 1% of earners, based on these studies, support capitalism's moral sensibilities. Moving on. Sean Ailing says, I'm not sure that the people of the top are starting to see it that way. Agreed. But we'll come back to that. First, tell me what ro went wrong in the 1970s and 80s when you say capitalism really started to go sideways. Stephen Perlstein. 
Two things happened during the 70s and 80s. First, the American industrial economy lost its competitiveness, neoliberal policies of global free trade and unregulated markets were embraced, and the U.S. was suddenly facing competition from all over the globe. Okay, and I, I pretty much agree with this. I just don't think it's neoliberal policy still uh, that didn't damage it. I, I think it's socialist policies in the 70s, particularly with Jimmy Carter uh, that did the damage. Uh, also, I think in a way that the 70s was the first time in U.S. history that the left really started embracing these multicultural, progressive, socialist, anti-American ideas. And the second part, he said, was the 80s. I disagree. I think the 80s was the best time in American history. Uh, there's so much innovations and the booming economy, economic growth under Reagan and other conservatives. But the 80s also did embrace the first corporatist policies, followed by the 90s. So, I, I kind of understand. Next part. So, American companies, I believe this is Sean Ewing. No, this is Stephen Perlstein. Yeah, this is Perlstein. So American companies, which had been so dominant in our market, our own market, and in foreign markets, started to lose their dominance, and they had to get leaner and meaner. They started behaving in different ways. They started sharing less profits with their employees and with share shareholders and customers. Eventually, that produced a revolt from shareholders in the mid-'80s. We had that the first of what we, we what were called hostile takeovers, in which people would come in and buy lo up large chunks of companies and threaten to take them over or out the executives if they didn't put shareholders above all else. The result of this was that these companies changed how they did business and the com completely embraced the idea that companies should be run to maximize shareholder value and nothing else. Obviously, that meant more money for the executives and shareholders and less money for the employees and customers. That is the mentality that led us into the place we're in now. Okay, so what he's doing is shaming individualism, which says you're free and you must give. And he's promoting collectivism, which is the socialist individualism, that says you're unfree and the state must take on your behalf. Sean Illing says, I want to push you on what I think is an, an excessively sanguine view of capitalism. In the book, you imply that capitalism has gone off the rails, but I disagree. I'd argue that capitalism has have has evolved in precisely the way we should have expected it to evolve. The culture of norms and values that were supposed to check the excesses of capitalism has, predictably, been eroded by capitalism itself. And now it's propelled entirely by greed. Okay, now this is a socialist proclaiming that capitalism is based on greed. Give me a break. Okay, capitalism is the least greedy, most effective economic system out there. Now, this is Sean Ailing. You seem to think that capitalism can be saved from itself. What do you say to people who think it's not salv salvageable, not morally legitimate, and in any case, not worth salvaging? Stephen Perlson, the question is, is all of the endemic to capitalism? I don't think so, because we see different kinds of capitalism in countries in, say, Northern Europe and Germany. Some of that has to do with the rules and laws under which they operate, but a lot of it has to do with the norms of behavior. So capitalism doesn't have to reach a point of the ruthlessness like it has here and in other places. What are you talking about capitalism is ruthless? This is constantly what these socialists will 
proclaim that capitalism is ruthless. The free market is not only economically superior, but is morally superior to any other economic system. The free market calls for voluntary action between individuals, not coercion. Meaning, if I want something from you, then I have to do something for it. If I want my lawn mowed, then I have to pay you for it. I can't drag you over to my lawn and make you mow it, like in socialist countries. I can't steal a pound of steak because I'm hungry, like in socialist countries. I actually have to pay. I'd say that's pretty moral. And then there's socialism, where the government can come into your life and put a gun to your head until you, you give them what they want. And then the next part says, and... One of the good things about capitalism is that it has self-correcting mechanisms, just like a, just as democracy has self-correcting mechanisms. The truth is that the outcome we have now, all these tr this tremendous equality, is bad morally and economically. This is not a sustainable system, and if it keeps getting worse, we run the risk of a revolution. Okay, okay. So, he's talking about civil turmoil in, a, in capitalist countries, such as the U.S., but he doesn't mention that Venezuela is literally on the brink of a civil war. Their inflation is a million percent. People, about a million percent. People are fleeing the country in mass numbers. People are eating live rats and dogs in the street. People are artists, former artists, are, are making baskets and hats and clothes into the Venezuelan dollar I, I don't know what it'll, the name for it is but it's worth nothing and then, and then he critiques capitalism this is hilarious so the next part is so i don't think capitalism is an inherently oh and by the way america is not a democracy and democracy doesn't have self-correcting mechanisms democracy says 51 percent of the population can roll with tyranny over the other 49 percent so it's wrong and then this next part says, uh, Stephen Perlstein says, so I don't think capitalism is inherently moral, is an inherently moral system or an inherently self-defeating system. But we have to ensure that it adapts what it veers too far into corruption and equality and inequality. And that's basically what I'm calling for in this book. Just like I said a minute ago, the free market is not only economically superior, but is morally superior to any other economic system. So he just repeats that it's mo not morally just. Schneiderling says, well, yes, capitalist systems are extremely adaptable. That's definitely one thing Karl Marx got really, really wrong. He got a lot of other stuff really wrong, but they won't mention it. Uh, but the problem is that our system isn't adapting. We're not adapting fast enough. And we live in a media culture in where nearly half the population is fed propaganda that convinces them that immigrants and regulations are, are holding them back, not greedy corporations. How do we course correct in the face of all of this confusion? Okay, so this is just more of what the left wants us to believe. They constantly drill this idea into your head that these giant corporations have too much power over our lives, which they don't. Not in a free market. Because it turns out only 0.1% of the American population actually gets this. We, the people, decide the fate of companies who want our business. And in free market capitalist economies, we, the people, will punish that company if they fail to satisfy the customers simply by not buying their products or goods 
or services, etc. And if they fail to understand this, you frankly fail to understand basic economics. Next part says, Stephen Perlstein, we do it by changing norms and by talking about it and discussing it. That's how a democracy goes about. Well, not a democracy, but okay. Now, one of the questions you might ask is, how do norms change? And the answer is, I don't know. But in the hashtag MeToo movement, we see a very good example of how norms change very, very quickly. What was acceptable five years ago is really not acceptable anymore. And it's because enough people got morally outraged and things changed. That's how norms shift and the culture evolves. Okay, this is another bad analogy because hashtag MeToo didn't set a revolution of new biological standards across the country and certainly not across the world. Only 31% of Americans support hashtag MeToo and 4 in 10 people think it's, got to, it's gone too far, which it has. But getting back to it, bringing up hashtag MeToo is a terrible analogy because 31% isn't a majority number and norms usually don't shift with this kind of number. The only reason the norm shift shifted was because Hollywood, mainstream media, the education system, and a leftist president at the time indoctrinated as many people as possible and threw out this politically correct narrative to make it seem like norm shifted. So this is just a very, very bad example. The next part says, Sean Illing, I'll circle back to the hashtag MeToo comparison because I think it's a bad one. Agreed. But there are also legal and structural imp- impediments here. We have a political system fueled by private money which means that wealth translates to political influence, in which, which it turns, in which in turns means the laws are increasingly rigged to benefit the people on top. No, wealth doesn't necessarily uh, translate to political influence. Trump beat Hillary, and he was outspent two to one. Uh, next part says, Dear Steve Perlstein, you make a very good point. And in the book, it says, number one, the number one thing we have to do is get money out of politics, and that will probably require a constitutional amendment. But you are right, we can reform our economic system if we don't reform our political financing system. As it is now, we're stuck in a vicious cycle in which concentration of wealth leads to a concentration of political power, which leads to yet more concentration of wealth, and we know how this plays out in the long run. It leads to a revolution, but we don't, re- we don't have to get anywhere near that if we can make the changes we need to make now. The Democratic Party will have to lead the way, and if they really want to do that, they have, they need to put this at the top of their agenda and run on it. People out there are angry, and this will help them win. It's a slam dunk issue, really. People are disgusted by what they're seeing, as you and I are. <sighs> okay, just like I said, fundraising and wealth doesn't really win elections. The Democrats had the most winnable election because of Hillary on top of her massive fundraising. And just because Trump... Had fired up, had a fired up base, and wanted conservative change in this country, along with 63 million other Americans. He won. Sean Illing says, "I want to quote something interesting from your book. Li- quote unquote, liberal critics never miss an opportunity to complain about the level of inequality, but they rarely, but they've rarely, rarely, been willing to say what level or what kinds of inequality would be morally acceptable." I have not an answer to this, but I'm curious to what you think the acceptance level of inequality is. Stephen Perlstein says, My answer has to do with something called social capital, which is a social science term that generally refers to the amount of trust 
that we all have in each other and in our institutions. And when things get so unfair that, that our trust becomes eroded, that's when you know you've gone too far. That's when you know things have become too unequal. Another way that you would know it is when you see class mobility, intergenerational class mobility start to decline. Okay, so I don't think there will be a decline in, in intergenerational class mobility, uh, particularly because Generation Z, my generation, is so conservative. And aside from the conservatives to statistically be more successful, make more money, and be more charitable, conservatives, especially in the 21st century, have cultural, religious, and moral values and standards in which liberals generally don't. And people that have those values and standards are statistically more likely to succeed. I think there will definitely not be intergenerational decline. I think there would be a boom, if anything. Now, we've only been in a neoliberal paradigm for 40 years, so it's a little too early to know the intergenerational data will look like. But we can already see the gross inequalities and the erosion of social capital. That, to me, is enough of a warning sign. We know enough to know we have to course correct or risk a disaster. That was also Stephen Perlstein, so that wasn't me talking. Sean Ealing says, in the book, you catalog all of these resolutions to the problem. More income redistribution, better tax reform, something like a universal basic income, a new social contract between business and society, more access to higher education, etc. And I agree with most of it, but I'm not confident we have the political will to get through these things, to get these things done. If I'm right about that, what do you think is going to happen in the short term, short to medium term? Okay, so the first thing he said was income redistribution, which is okay in theory. Not really. Well, it's okay, like I said earlier. But the good part about it, which the good sounding part about it is everyone's equal. Every, everyone has enough money. Everyone, nothing's unfair. There's a level playing ground. And the bad part about it, which really overshadows the good part to me, uh, another capitalist. Um, is that you're stealing from the upper class and the middle class. And the fact that socialists don't look at that and take that into account, even in theory, just shocks me. Name one social program that has been positively effective on people's lives. Name one. One. Social Security, Medicaid, Obamacare, Universal Health Care. Name one. Medicare. None of them have. It's because charity... And Charlie Kirk, I was watching this event a couple uh, days ago, uh, a, a TPUSA event, and Charlie Kirk pretty much said, if we would stop, uh, it was something to the extent that if we would stop uh, with all these social programs um, and let these people keep their money, then you would see an explosion in private charity ten times uh of what these social programs have accumulated in money. And I completely agree with them. People are charitable. But if the government is coming in to steer the, steer, steal their money, they're not going to have that money to donate to charity. But redistribution of wealth just gives the government more power and access, which makes it bigger. And we all know how big government ends up. The next thing he said was better tax reform, something like a universal basic income. So universal basic income is 
just the government giving everyone a sum of money each year. It's, it's like helicopter money. It's like you throw it out, boom, ba bum ba boom ba and they're just throwing out money. Yeah. So there, there are two problems with this. Uh, one being it'll cause inflation because the government is just handing out free money and telling people to spend it, so prices are going to rise. And my second problem with this, the universal basic income, is that it's something for a utopian society. And by that, I mean universal basic income is something that is so far in the future that it's literally pointless. It's, it's a pointless debate right now. Because unless you have robots working all jobs in every industry, which is literally impossible because not all industries are for labor and some are creative jobs. But unless this happens, we should not have a universal basic income. And if robots are working every job in every industry, it wouldn't even be a capitalist economy anymore because a capitalist economy is based off of scarcity of capital, labor, and resource. And the third thing he mentioned is a, um, what was it? The new social contract between business and society, which I think it's pro- it's pretty fine just the way it is. There should be some changes. I'm not going to get too much into it. We have to move on. Um, and the fourth and final reason is access to higher education, which is free college tuitions. So pretty much the government sucks at absolutely everything. And since they've gotten involved in college tuitions in the 80s, a year of college has increased $32,000. So th- the only reason the left ever brings up college is because they want the youth vote. That's all, that's literally the only reason. They just want the youth vote. And th- the thing that works out with this is that college students, are st- they're kids, they're stupid. They think they're getting free money by loans. And when the colleges know that students have more money to spend, they raise the cost of admission. This is why you have, what, average of 30 5,000? That's just an average. There's college has out there 100,000 if you want your master's. But the fact of the matter is that government, quote-unquote, help actually hurts future students by causing costs to go up. And it turns out these future students are the leftist millennials begging Bernie Sanders and all of these other progressives for free college tuitions. So that's the fourth thing. It's just another get-out-to-vet tactic for the left. And the next thing says Steve Perlstein. First, let me just say that it will be easier to do these sorts of things than it will to be go f- to go full socialist. If we lack the political will to fix the kind of capitalism we have, then there is surely a higher political barrier to the full socialist model of national health ins- insurance, free college for everybody, and guaranteed income for every individual, whether they work or not. So if you're saying that things have to get worse before they get better, you may be right. However, if you look at public opinion polls, if you look at the recent election, I think they will make, they may be already there. Again, I see the success of the hashtag MeToo movement as a great example of what's possible. Okay, so when he says it'll be easier to put in place moderate policies instead of progressive policies, I'll say I want to explain this real quick uh, for those of you that might not know the difference between moderate and progressive. So progressive progressive socialist is someone like bernie sanders and i'd say elizabeth she's kind of in the middle i'd say she's a progressive socialist she's becoming more and more but bernie sanders alexandria ocasio-cortez somebody that says full-scale socialist economy and a couple bills and laws that's what a that's what a progressive is um they just want to change it over like that 
Um, on the other hand, a moderate is somebody that wants to. It's believe it or not, it's somebody like Obama and Hillary. It's somebody that wants to put in place these social programs like Obamacare, Affordable Care Act, social, or excuse me, socialized medicine, universal health care, Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security, you name it. They want to put these in and then gradually become a socialist economy. Um, but it's really not going to... It, it probably... I mean, I have to think about this. He's most likely right. I mean, it'll be probably e- it'll be easier to put in moderate policies instead of progressive policies because the Democratic Party can't ride on this progressive socialist philosophy forever, and they're gonna have to eventually come back to the center and take a more moderate stance on things. Uh, but the question shouldn't be what's easier to implement moderate policies or progressive policies. The question should be. What is the outcome of these policies? Does it help or hurt the country? Does it help or hurt the American worker? Does it help or hurt the people? And it turns out both of these economic philosophies don't work. We all know progressive socialism doesn't work. Well, neither does the moderate way. Because the ultimate goal behind both of these is a full-scale socialist economy. Just like I said. Um, but eventually they both crumble. They both collapse. And it doesn't last long either way. Period. So moving on, Sean Illing says, The hashtag MeToo movement is a misguided comparison. We are talking about broad changes in our political and economic system, changes that directly threaten the entren- most entrenched financial interests in this country. I think you're right about the public sentiment, but I'm not all convinced that the financial class is prepared to relinquish anything. In fact, we've seen the big banks essentially go right back to these sorts of behaviors that produced the financial crash of 08. And we just saw Republicans pass an egregious tax cut that will deepen the very inequalities we're talking about here. Steve Perlstein says, Well, it's worth remembering that social norms change before policy changes, not the other way around. But yes, I agree with the GOP tax cut was enormously irresponsible and unfair. These are the sorts of things that can cause the public to say enough is enough. Okay. Oh, this is him still. Uh, my, my view is that we're at a tipping point now, and things are about to change. You and I may disagree about what exactly we need to do, or how far we need to go. I just said that. Um, but I think there are enough positive signs in public opinion that suggest we're at a tipping point. We'll just have to see what happens next. Um, so, okay, and that's it. I don't have much to say on that final segment. But I would like to say this. My final word to these liberals and leftists, progressives and moderates, anybody that embraces a socialist ideology, really, get a grip on life, you delusional crybabies. Not everything is equal. And if you didn't have this great capitalist free market life given to you, I guarantee you, you would never even have another tweet tweeted or another complaint because you would be living a horrible socialist life. Just like in Venezuela. And Bernie Sanders didn't get three houses from Venezuela's economy. Every day you wake up and you are piggybacking and riding off our booming free market capitalist economy that you don't even understand a single thing about. You don't understand the very concept of free enterprise. 
If you're listening to this on an Apple iPhone, an Apple computer, an Apple iPad, an Apple whatever, that's free enterprise. If you're listening to this on a Kindle, I don't know if that's possible, but if you're listening to this on an Amazon Kindle, that's free enterprise. If you're listening to this on a Samsung, that's free enterprise. You use free enterprise every day. It's so good you don't even realize it. Capitalism is the greatest thing that has ever happened in the history of mankind besides the Bible, which created Western culture, like I said at the beginning. Socialism is based on greed and, yeah, inequality at the end. So stop complaining. Okay, so shifting gears into our next topic, Nancy Pelosi and climate change. The Democrats have attacked climate change. Uh, so, Nancy Pelosi, as you know, took the gavel again uh, on the third. We're a couple days behind, so I'm a little bummed, but we're covering it right now, so better than nothing. Uh, so, Nancy, Nancy Pelosi took the gavel for the, what, 150,000th time. I don't know anymore. She's ancient. Um, she's going to go down as history as one of the worst. But, so, her first move as Speaker of the House was you would think it would be a more serious issue because America is on a brink of, I'd say, a crisis with these Democrats. Um, you would think she would take a more serious note, but no. You know what she said? She was talking about the importance of climate change. Yeah, you know that, climate change? So she was pretty much talking about, I think one of the things was the how President Trump should have never, ever left the Pla- Paris Acl- Climate Accords, the stupid globalist trade, not trade, this pact, the stupid climate pact that would have cost us somewhere around the order of two to three million jobs by 2025. Yeah, so she was talking about how these carbon emissions and everything uh, were at threat of these rising carbon emissions, but they've actually de- dropped in recent years without this. And... One of the things people can do it in two ways, and this I've said this from the beginning. We don't need these stupid, these stupid globalist packs. You know what we need? We need technological innovations because that's the only thing that's going to get us out of climate change is technological innovations. Because I think when humans innovate to a certain point, there is going to be renewable energy to the sky, and that's the next thing we're going to get to. Uh, but I don't want to spill the beans because it's really good. So people can do it in two ways, two major ways. One is purchase electric or hybrid cars, and two, uh, it's a lot of these are paid for by the states to uh, install smart thermostats, and people already do that. Um, and U.S. carbon emissions, actually, I have some facts here because I'm not a big fan of the climate change debate. I think it's very boring. U.S. carbon emissions declined to a 67-year low in 2017, and we're meeting our goals without the Paris Climate Accords, just like I said. I just wanted to show you this clip now. Because she's just so stupid. And I I don't know. Here you go. Here's the clip. The existential threat of our time, the climate crisis, a crisis manifested in natural disasters of epic proportions. The American people understand the urgency. The people are ahead of the Congress. The Congress must join them. And that is why we have created a select committee on climate crisis, the entire Congress must work to put an end to the inaction and denial of science that threaten the planet and the future. Okay, so, just wonderful. Main thing she should be focusing on. 
It's definitely climate change. But I really want to shift into this next uh, thing. Still climate change. It's just not Nancy Pelosi making these A-plus useless decisions. Our beloved Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. Yeah, remember her? The girl from the Bronx that, that that's a Latina woman, so she's so she wants to be privileged and she danced on a rooftop and the left hates us for it now. And she's a socialist whack job and she proclaimed she was raised poor and she was raised in a rich neighborhood. But anyway, her first move as representative was climate change. Yeah. And it's not just climate change. It's completely insane. She calls it the new green deal. It's hilariously insane. So pretty much, she was, I just guess she was planning this document for a while. Uh, she calls it the new green deal. Um, it's, it, I, I don't know. I, I just want to read the script. So, the script of this thing. So pretty much, it was about climate change and carbon emissions, I guess. And... The use of energy. Okay, so it was about the use of energy in this country. And I just want to uh, read this off. So, she said, The select committee shall complete the plan for a Green New Deal by a date no later than January 1st, 2020. So, this is the document. The select committee shall complete the finalized draft legislation by a date no later than that is 90, day cal- 90 calendar days after the select committee has completed the plan in accordance with paragraph FBI and uh, 5VI. It's like the paragraph stuff. And in any event, no later than March 1st, 2020. So that's not the crazy part. This is. So it says scope of the plan for a, new, a Green New Deal and the draft legislation. So a plan for a Green New Deal in the draft legislation shall be developed with the objective of reaching the following outcomes within a, a target window of 10 years from the start of the ex- execution of the plan so listen 10 years dramatically expand existing renewable power sources and deploy new production capacity with the goal of meeting 100 percent of national power demand through renewable sources in 10 years meaning what 2000 and it will be 2030 then in 2030 11 years away 10 years from when this is in place she wants 100% of our energy to be through renewable resources. And I just want to show you how ridiculous this is now. Okay, so the U.S. energy consumption by energy source in 2017, which is the latest one, um, was 97.7 quadrillion sorry, um, thermal units. So that's a lot. And... The percentage-wise was petroleum, 37%, natural gas, 29%, coal, 14%, and then nuclear electric power, which is very clean, pretty much the entirety of France's energy runs off that, left doesn't like it, and then renewable energy, 11%, they want that at 100% by 2030, 11%, and 11 quadrillion British thermal units, BTUs. Wood is at 19% of that, of the 11%. Biofuels at 21%. Biomass waste, 4%. Wind, 21%. Hydroelectric, 25%. Solar, 6%. Geothermal, 2%. And this hasn't been a a dramatic increase at all since 
the uh, 2009, which is what this is. It's 10 years from now. It was eight years from then, from t- 2017. Renewable energy was at eight percent there. Hasn't increased much at all. Eight to eleven. 2017, 11 percent. 2009, 8 percent. It's not going to get to 100% by 2030. That is so out of proportion. You know how they want to do it? It's cripple the American economy and tax the hell out of the 1% and the 10%. And that is so insanely realistic in such a short window of time. So, apparently, Ocasio-Cortez doesn't like the other 89% of the U.S. economy that is other than renewable energy. And the stupidity doesn't stop here. It gets even worse, a lot worse. The document also states that the new Green Deal, the Green New Deal, will promote non-environmental projects such as social, economic, regional, racial, and gender-based justice. And she says, I mean, what the hell does that even mean? (laughs) Gender-based justice. And then she says also, we need an energy-efficient smart grid. Yeah, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez should definitely be the one designing this stuff. Not people that actually work on these kind of projects. Remember, legit two minutes ago, she was a bartender. She's not very smart. She's a better dancer than she is politician. Way better, actually. Okay, so now moving on from our comedy segment there is now our main topic. The shutdown continues. Okay, so where do I even begin? So as you probably know, hope you know, because this is pretty mainstream, Trump in mid-December started pulling, putting his focus uh, for 2019 on the border wall because he knows if he doesn't have a, a he, if he doesn't build the wall, he will not get reelected because his base will not be fired up, and he just won't get reelected. Uh, but he had numerous talks with the Democrats, and they pretty much said no, walls are racist, they're ineffective, no, 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 no. And he said, no, I'm not letting you snowflakes get away with this. We'll shut down the government if we don't get the money. And they pretty much said, okay, bet. And he was like, okay, bet. And then it happened. So there's a partial government shutdown now. So it started on December 22nd, and now it's the 8th. So it's been shut down. It's going on the 9th. It's been shut down for, what, 17, 18 days? But I was on Twitter yesterday. And I saw no one else but Nancy Pelosi that said walls are immoral. So I just have to play this clip. It's just so hypocritical. The fact is, a wall is an immorality. It's not who we are as a nation. And this is not a wall between Mexico and the United States that the president is creating here. It's a wall between reality and his constituents, his supporters. What the hell does that even mean? <laughs> then what is it, you moron? And I love how none of the reporters in there ask, oh, what does it mean? Or what is the wall for? What do you mean by that? Nobody asks that. But now we have Democrats even refusing to state, Trump, state Trump's purpose of the wall, even though it is a physical barrier between, the Mexi- between Mexico and the United States of America aimed at protecting the American citizens from illegal immigrants and foreign evaders. That is what it is. Nothing more, nothing less. That is what it is. And she says it's not 
who we are. When a politician says it's not who we are, 99% of the time it is who we are. So never trust the politicians. But moving on from Pelosi and the Democrats taking the wall, President Trump has done something uh, that I think is pretty good this week. Um, According to CNN on Friday, quote-unquote, Trump said he was considering emergency powers, which would allow him to use military funding, which would compromise of two separate laws. The first is 10 U.S. Code Section 284, support the counter-drug activities to counter transnational crime. The second one is 10 U.S. Code 2808, construction authority in the event of a declaration of war or national energy emergency. Excuse me. This is what he is talking about with a national emergency. You've probably heard it for the past couple of days. That's what it is. And I think it's very good. I've said this since the beginning. I think it's pretty good because the next president can't just come in and tear down the wall. If the next president that come, excuse me, the next president is a far leftist and then they come in and issue an executive order to tear down the wall, it won't be a lot because it's built with the military. So, in conclusion, the shutdown probably will last another month at the most until a deal is struck. Um, but that's all for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Tell your friends, family, neighbors, and even liberals. Give it a rating. You really need a rating. If you don't do it, then we won't be able to do this for much longer because it won't grow and we won't get enough support. You know the deal. So go do that right away. If you can't, write yourself a note. Leave yourself a reminder. Don't care how you do it. Just do it. Leave a rating and subscribe. Stay tuned for the upcoming episode. Peace out. Show not so good. Anchor Publishing Production, anchor.fm2019. Oh.